Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, revolutionizing the abortion conversation, a conversation with pro-life new wave feminist Destiny Herndon De La Rosa and Helen Hillix. Aren't you sick of the pain of the polarized conversation in our country about abortion? Do you believe that there is common ground between the two sides? Is it true that most pro-life supporters are not feminists? And is it true that most pro-life supporters truly believe in supporting all life? Are the new wave feminists truly an original idea? Do they promise the hope that the two desperate, disparate sides of this issue might be coming toward finding commonalities at last? Are pro-choice women the only group that feminists that can be feminists and pro-women's rights? We won't shy away from the tough questions on this show. Join us for what is sure to be a dynamic conversation that just might challenge all our perspectives and move us all to a new place on this most painful issue. And it might just help create an inner revolution in some of us. Listen in and then join us for the April 8th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation event online or in person. And now, here's Helen. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much, Todd um, and Destiny. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know you have a very busy schedule, and we so appreciate your coming on the show with us and talking about this very important topic. So welcome, Destiny. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, to start out with, I'd like you to talk a little bit about about new wave feminists and what you believe in, what you identify as uh, making you something different than other feminists or other pro-life groups. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got started and what you believe in? And we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So New Wave Feminist subscribes to the consistent life ethic, which is a belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. Um, that means we're anti-unjust war, anti-torture, anti-death penalty. And then we're also anti-abortion because we believe that, you know, that is the moment when we are at our weakest and most vulnerable uh, is in the womb. And so... We, I, I guess that's kind of unusual for a feminist group to be anti-abortion, but um, we found that there are a lot of women who we are able to find common ground with, even ones who are pro-choice, um, because even though we have access to abortion, it is a legal right, that doesn't always mean that it's necessarily the best decision um, for a woman. And I, I kind of love that that's what you guys are discussing, is the fact that just because you can, should you? Um, are there emotional repercussions for women when we terminate? How many women, you know, go into an abortion clinic because they have been coerced or felt pressured, or honestly feel like they have no other choice at all? And so we really try to focus on supporting women and loving them well enough that they don't ever feel that that is the choice that they need to make. Because I think the one thing we can all agree on is that no woman ever really wants an abortion. This is not something when she's a little girl, she, you know, can't wait till the day she grows up and is able to have an abortion. It's always a decision that is made kind of out of this, this fear and panic because you have a crisis pregnancy. Um, and so our question has been, what if we remove the crisis? What if we stop focusing so much on the laws and try to focus on just supporting women, um, through our culture, you know, and, and creating a, society and a movement that supports women so well that that they don't feel that they have to make that choice. 
I, I love what you're saying. And even though I have always considered myself pro-choice, I really resonate with so much of what you're saying. And uh, that excites me. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have to share this with you, Destiny, that um, earlier today I was kind of having a little bit of anxiety and I called, uh, I called for support because I felt like my resonance with your principles was me betraying the pro-choice <laughs> movement. And <laughs> isn't that funny? And, you know, I, I'm sharing that partly because I want to put that out for our listeners, too, that some of you pro-choice people um, may feel the same way I did, that, you know, if I allow myself to align with people who identify as pro-life, am I betraying uh, other feminist women? And I, I hope that we, on this show today, can challenge some of those black and white ideas and some of those rigidly defined definitions and descriptions of who we are and what we believe in and allow us to just approach this topic from a neutral perspective and really try to find common ground, look for what we uh, believe in that is similar and honor and respect those areas in which we might differ and I want you to know that's the approach that I'm, I'm going to be taking today is to really see how we believe things in common and can move forward together as a society. Um, well, and Howard, I would say that I think, I think you're onto something and it's something that we're finding a lot of people are interested in is stripping away the labels and just having like heart to heart conversations about this issue because it has become something so polarizing and we see these two sides that are both, you know, it seems like at times so full of just anger and hostility. And both of them are so afraid of even giving an inch. You know, we, we can't make any compromises. We can't talk about the real life issues um, when it comes to something as polarizing as abortion, because we've been told that we have. But what we found is, you know, I'm able to go and speak on college campuses across the U.S. is the average person who um, a lot of times I would say by default is is pro-choice. It's just that's the, you know, kind of the more acceptable one to fit into. We'll still say that they believe that, you know, again, this is this is not necessarily this happy procedure. And if it were happening to them, to a loved one, to someone in their family, if they were challenged with that, they would want to make sure that they were being, you know, that support system for them. And they were being there to hear them and make sure that they knew it was possible if they wanted to continue a pregnancy. And so when we realize that there is such I mean, not even just common ground, but rich common ground that really focuses on being pro pro woman and pro child at the same time. Um, then I think that's where we start making progress. But the problem is, you know, I often joke that if I'm at a happy hour, I'm I'm a writer here in Dallas, so there will be you know a Dallas Morning News happy hour mixer, and I'll be talking to someone and I'll be telling them a little bit about my own story, which is that my mother became pregnant with me at 19 at the University of Texas, and to me she is like the definition of you know the feminist strength. Um, she could have easily had an abortion; she chose not to, but that meant moving back home to Dallas with her, uh, you know, very religious parents, my grandparents who are ministers, and you know it was something where not only did she have to tell them she was pregnant and single, uh, but that she, you know, wasn't a virgin. That was a really big deal too. <laughs> and here she was 
if she had just stayed in Austin, you know, a very liberal college town, had an abortion, no one would have known that I ever existed. And so for me, it is personal because I've been on that side of it. Uh, but then later on in life, when I was 16 years old, you know, it was, if anybody knew not to repeat that cycle, it was me. I had lived the very reason that you don't repeat that cycle. Um, because my upbringing wasn't easy because of that. Uh, but at the same time, when I was 16, I found myself pregnant with my son. And while I I knew I wouldn't have an abortion. I do know that there was just this palatable fear. Like all I can describe it as is wanting to rip my stomach off of my body and run away from it. And I, I was so angry at myself for, for being in this situation, for now putting an innocent child in this situation. And when I talk to people about my story, I don't ever say the word pro-life. I just tell them that and tell them how I have a heart for supporting women who have been in that position now. Um, a lot of times they, they completely agree with me. Now, if I walk up and say, hi, I'm pro-life, and you know, then they're already not listening to me because I think we get so wrapped up in these polarizing labels that we don't actually get to hear people's experience. And in my opinion, that's the beauty of intersectional feminism is everybody brings their own background, their own unique perspective and experiences to the table and says, let's empathize, let's learn from each other. But we're so on the same page with that. <laughs> really relating, honestly relating and understanding where someone's coming from, understanding their background, their life experience. Your story totally touched me, Destiny, because I can, I can completely understand that. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we're here together today to try and uh, break through this, this seeming divide that exists in this realm. You know, I want to share my story as well because I think it uh, informs the other side in a way. Um, my mother got pregnant, maybe she was 19, maybe she was 20, I don't know, and she got married and ended up having six children by the time she was 25 and then got, you know, got divorced and, you know, I don't think she really wanted all those children and we didn't have a very stable nurturing environment to grow mm -hmm. up in because of that. And when I was 16, I gave myself an abortion and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a horrifying experience. And I think back on that now and I think, oh my God, you know, I wish I had had a different choice. You know, I wish things had been different. Um, I lived in a tiny town in Missouri where, you know, if you weren't a virgin, of course, so many people weren't, but uh, you were totally ostracized. And I, I'm not arguing in favor of that at all, but I think I, I love what you said, Destiny, in on your website, I believe it was, or maybe it was in an article that I read about you, that... You're not fighting against abortion. You're fighting for a society that nurtures and supports women so that they never have to make that decision. Yeah, Helen. I mean, I can't even imagine how scary that must have been at 16 to find yourself, you know, feeling like you need to take care of that yourself. Um, and, and I think that sometimes that's the empathy that's lacking from the pro-life side. Honestly, there is a lot of judgment or condemnation, but I know, you know, when I was 16 and pregnant, I went to a public high school and I had a number of girls come up to me and tell me that they had also been pregnant over the summer. You know, I came back with, with the full belly and everything. Right. And, right. Um, and, 
and they didn't. And so at first, my first inclination was to be frustrated. Like, don't you feel, you know, understand that I disagree with this. But then I had to realize I had a family that I knew wasn't going to kick me out. I had medical care. I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to lose my support system. So many young women, I think, um, like I said, feel like they have absolutely no choice because not only will they lose the support system they have, but they won't have one for this, you know, child nine months from now. And so if we can acknowledge that... All of these different things absolutely uh, influence uh, a woman's decision when it comes to abortion. Uh, and even growing up in a big family like that, you know, where you you saw your mother's life. I, you know, six children in a six-year period is, God bless her. I mean, that, it was that's actually in a, in a less, it was actually four and a half years because the last two were twins. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, I can absolutely understand um, that. And I think that that's where a lot of times, um, because if we're being completely honest about this, there are many religious overtones in the pro-life movement. As you guys know, it is a very Catholic movement, which I think is is wonderful. I personally am not Catholic. My group is completely secular. But, of course, that will end up bleeding into the conversation about prevention, which I am very, very pro-prevention. I fully believe in woman's autonomy. I believe in her having a right to her own body. My issue is when there's another body in her body that it gets a little sticky, of course. But when it comes to a woman being able to decide whether or not she wants to parent, especially have that many children, you know, I think that um, I think that that absolutely needs to be up to the woman. I, I, I appreciate that perspective and you know that's one of the things that that drew me to your website and to and to you was that compassion for both sides of the of the story and how important that is you know i can totally resonate with with your history and why you made the choice you made and i feel like you're doing the same with me which is exactly what we need in this world is to not just, as you were saying before, be stuck in those labels, but to come together as people, as women, and as men. Because, Todd, do you want to share your way of relating to this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was dating someone, you know, we we weren't like super close. I met her at a club and we were basically having sex. And she used a diaphragm and they're not 100% effective and she got pregnant and um we you know we didn't really talk about it she she I supported her in terms of financially helping to pay for the abortion but I didn't go and we didn't talk about like well should we have this child you know like you know and it's it was it was something that I apologized later, but I think it really came out of the lack of connection and the lack of having a real relationship and being young and just being, you know, like people need a lot more education on being related instead of just going and having sex like the first thing, (laughs) the first chance. You know, I was, uh, I mean, I was in my early 20s and, but I was still in that kind of mindset of, of, um, you know, let's try out different, you know, relationships. And so, you know, all those things um, play into this. Uh, It's so much of it. it, It's just like casual sex. It it ends up being a breeding ground for, for people not, you know, having that connection that they would want to keep the child. Well, I'm always curious, uh, you know, from the perspective of a male, 
we talk a lot about equality, but this is one case where, you know, um, obviously the equality split because it's happening within a woman's body. So I understand that. But how, I mean, how does that feel knowing that she ultimately the decision was completely up to her and it sounds like she didn't even allow you any say in it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember if she actually did give, <laughs> you know, I think it was just kind of like a given. No, we're not going to have this child. Yeah. So we didn't talk about it, you know, and I didn't push for well, it. And, and I see that. I see yeah. that a lot with, um, you know, young couples who talk about that, that it's just a given. And sometimes you find that both of them even would have continued the pregnancy. But because we have this rhetoric, again, that it's just it's a woman's body, it's her choice, the guy has no say, he doesn't offer support, she doesn't feel supported, and it ends up leading to abortion. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of that lack of communication and connection beforehand. Yeah. And I will say that that's one thing when I'm talking to high school kids. Um, you know, if you're going to be sexually active, that's that's your business. But if you do create a new life, you know, kind of you need to have you need to have that contingency plan. Um, you know, yes. because I do think that this is the one case where, uh, I don't want to call abortion a scapegoat, but there's, there's no consequences. It's that one place where you can say, okay, I made this choice completely consensual, uh, you know, sex that I engaged in, but there's still a plan B. We can still get rid of it. And yeah. I think that a lot of people my age, you see, or, you know, my age when I was 16, you see them doing that. You see them kind of fine with it at first. They're, um, there's a wonderful quote by Frederica Matthews Green, which says, no woman wants an abortion as she wants a Porsche or an ice cream cone. She wants an abortion as an animal with its leg caught in a trap, wants to gnaw it off. Right. And so a lot of women, you know, feel the relief after the abortion. But then a decade down the road, when suddenly they're, they're married and they're planning a pregnancy and have this, you know, quote unquote, wanted child, suddenly they're excited. You know, they're getting the emails. Your baby's the size of a kumquat. Your baby's a papaya <laughs> this week. And they start saying, oh my gosh, I had an abortion at the same stage. And so yes. I do think that it's also very important that, you know, when decisions are made out of fear and panic, they're usually not our best decisions. But if we can, you know, know going in beforehand, have all the information, whether it is where you can find support, whether it's, you know, even just something as basic as fetal development, because I will tell you a story when I was 16 and, and had the girl come up to me at school, she was kind of like the school bully. Every, even the teachers were afraid of her. Like she was a scary, badass chick, um, which is of course why I was drawn to her. But she came up to my lunch table. I was sitting there reading a book and she said, um, yeah, I was pregnant over the summer too. Now this was the second girl who had, who had, confessed this to me, feeling that we were kindred spirits, because obviously we had been in this same boat together. Uh, the one on the day prior who had told me this, I looked at her and I was so angry that she would even tell me this, um, which by the way, I've come a long way from then. And I said, so you killed your child and you're proud of it. How dare you be proud of something like that? And this girl cusses me out and storms off. And rightfully so, like as a grown woman, looking back, the condemnation and lack of compassion I showed, um, disgusts me now. I can't believe I ever did that. But I remember going home and telling my mom and thinking she was going to be proud of me. She had raised me pro-life and here we were. And she said, so, you know, she'll have her next abortion in your honor. She's certainly not going to come to you. You're not a safe person she can talk to. And I just remember feeling this punch in the gut of conviction. So the following day, in the way the universe works by bringing just the right people to you, I have mm -hmm. almost an identical uh, prompt where the girl comes up and says, I was pregnant too. And all I know is I can't say that she killed her baby. That's, that's all I know. I've got to say something better this time, but I don't really know what to say. And I said, do you know how far along you were? And she goes, I don't know. I think I was like 12 weeks. 
And here I am getting the baby center emails. And I said, 12 weeks, fingernails and toenails. Or I like mumbled something. Um, now, in my opinion, the, looking back now, of course, I would have handled it differently. But that wasn't necessarily judgment or condemnation. That was facts. That was factual information that she probably should have had about fetal development before she ever made that choice. And this girl slams her hands down on the table and she's like, you know, F you. If I wanted to know that, I would have effing asked. And she storms off. And I'm like, okay, so I'm two for two and just getting women to now scream at me um, because I've handled this so poorly. But I think in that moment, that's when I became a very strong uh, supporter of pro-education. And the fact that I want to advocate for women, I want them to know, first of all, I want them to know before they're ever in the position. But when they find themselves in the position, the the fact that I just turned this clump of cells into a human child to her, because that's what happened. It was just this immediate regret she had. And my heart broke for her in thinking she had been sold an abortion. You know, there's, there's, I think there's kind of a difference sometimes. And I think there's a lot of places where it is a cattle call and a young woman goes in and, and she's just processed and she's not given information. She's not given alternative choices. Um, and, you know, she's trying to gnaw her, her leg free from the trap. And so um, when we have cases like that of women who don't have a lot of the, you know, fetal development education or anything else, these are the women that I, you know, they say on average it takes a decade for um, a lot of women to go to post-abortion treatment, you know, the, the counseling for that. Uh, and I kind of wonder if that's not why, because, you know, 10 years later when you have the wanted pregnancy, suddenly you kind of start remembering um, this moment that I think so many women do feel shame for, whether they should or not. I think they're not really allowed to talk about it. Uh, there is still a ton of stigma when it comes to saying, maybe I regret that. Maybe that wasn't the right choice for me. And, can, I, can, um, I, can I throw something in here? Because I, I, I am very touched by all the the uh, self-disclosure and transparency. I really admire that about you, Destiny, because that can help us all learn too, can't it, is to expose our mistakes and, you know, discuss them and and how we came to believe certain things. I, I'd like to throw in, I'm a marriage and family therapist by trade. That's how I make a living. And I've had lots of clients over the years who have had abortions and, and many who wish they had um Mm. and that's that's a hard thing to say right there because i don't think most people will say that they wish they had an abortion but they're saying it in so far as they have miserable lives that they wish they did not have and i i one of the things that i read on your website was um or somewhere, I, I don't remember. Things all blur together in my mind at 67 <laughs> years old. But um, somewhere I read that that we're talking about not being dominated by a patriarchal society that, that wants us to get rid of babies. Um, and, and I think there's truth to that, but I think there's also a lot of truth to the other side of it in which... We have babies we don't want because some man, whether it's our, you know, dogmatic father or, uh, you know, controlling boyfriend or whatever, says you're going to have this baby. And even if you have six of them already, you're going to have seven or eight of them because I told you so. And I don't want you to have the freedom um, to limit the, the – and, of course, I – totally agree with you that it would be so much better 
to prevent the pregnancy to start with. But I, I also think we have to look at the other side. And I, and I being a survivor of abortion, I can absolutely verify and validate what you're saying about the emotional distress that an abortion causes. Absolutely been horrifying in my life. But I also have been on the other side of counseling women who had children too young or too many or an abusive husband or whatever. And that, and I've also, by the way, counseled many, many people who were adopted and they have, Mm -hmm. they have terrible emotional problems, just terrible emotional problems that many of them never get over. Um, so it, it it's it's the pain is on both sides. It's not like we can say if we can eliminate abortion, then everything is going to be good because that's not yeah. true either. You know what we really have to do is to deal with the the lack of consciousness in our whole world. That and this relates back to what Todd was saying about the lack of consciousness when we start to engage in sex. It's like if we were more conscious about everything that we do, and this speaks to what you were saying too, is that some teenagers think that they can have sex without consequence because there is abortion. Um, But I've also grew up with a, a, a girl that was my same exact age, and my name was Helen, and her name was Ellen, and, you know, she had... She was sent away to have a baby, and, you know, it, it had a huge impact on her life, too. So, all the sides of it are painful, and we need to, to co-create a society in which we don't, you know, romanticize having babies, either. Right. Uh, right. And, and I would say that, you know, when you talk about the woman who's being forced to to be pregnant, you know, have, have pregnancy after pregnancy to me, you know, abortion is a bandaid on a festering wound in that case. Like clearly the issue is that she is being oppressed, um, in, in probably more ways than that. And yes, yes while this might yes. take care of one of the symptoms of it. We haven't addressed the root. And, you know, that's one of the things I think is really interesting about, uh, you know, the roots of feminism was that it was, it was kind of born out of the temperance movement, which I don't know if a lot of people know that, but basically the issue is that men were coming coming home drunk from the bars and raping their wives and beating their wives. And because women were valued um, or had such little value, they were property, they did not think that they could say, hey, let's pass laws that would make it illegal for you to beat and rape me. And so what they ended up doing was saying, we can you know, have prohibition, we can get rid of alcohol, and that will solve the problem. <laughs> and so I've noticed that a lot of times... Um, we do that. There's rape in a third world country. We send our best abortionists over there to solve the problem for them. But that doesn't actually solve the problem for the woman because all it's done is now, you know, eliminate one of the consequences, but we still have a very uh, patriarchal structure. And so while I do agree that that I think, you know, that um, archetype exists of the man who wants to get the girl pregnant, I think we also need to understand that the exact opposite exists, which is the guy who wants a flat screen. You know, the last thing he wants is to be paying child support or to have any of that responsibility. And so you see him out there at the, you know, pro-choice protest as well. And honestly, that guy's a douchebag. He's using abortion in order to prey on women. And so, again, that's something it's like it's that gray area that we're not allowed to talk about how abortion is used um, 
almost in, in just as negative a way because we have women who are being disempowered and men who are using these tools um, so that they can continue exploiting women. And that whether that's by making them a broodmare or, you know, by by being the chivalrous guy who pays for the abortion, which, um, again, that's because I'm at college campuses. That's the guy that I see much more of because of, you know, this hookup culture. And, you know, as Todd was saying, you're right. It's it's this unintentional, um, you know, not having this consciousness that there are there is going to be a natural consequence to this at some point. Might not happen every time, but sexual intercourse is a procreative act. It can happen. And so um, at what point do we have personal responsibility to this new individual that has its own, you know, genetic genetic footprint, its own DNA and brainwaves and heartbeat? And I think that's a question that uh, to me as a feminist is very important because women were treated like property for most of history. And now I feel like we've become liberated. We have our voice, but are we just passing that same oppression down to the unborn fetus by saying you're my property? And depending on whether I want you or not, uh, I can terminate. And, and I understand it's not in the same bullying way that we've seen patriarchy in the past, but there is some degree of might makes right. You're voiceless. You can't consent. And so I'm going to be able to eliminate you. Um, and, and, you know, where where's the conversation that we can have as feminists about that? I, I agree with that completely. And I also, you know, one thing that I've always disagreed with the pro-choice faction about is that you cannot say this is not a baby until, yeah. you know, until it's such and such a size you know, I, I think we need to be very well aware that it is a baby in the making. Now, maybe it isn't a, you know, maybe the the first few days or weeks or whatever, you know, there aren't any fingernails. But, you know, let's not, let's not pretend that we're not taking a life. But I think that, um, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, what do we do with situations in which there is a, misformed baby that's, you know, really terribly, uh, I don't know how to say it other than just terribly deformed. Very disabled. Yeah, very disabled or it's, or the victims of rape or, uh, you know, women in third world countries who absolutely cannot afford to feed their babies if they get pregnant. I mean, what do we do in the meantime? I am totally in you know, in resonance with you, Destiny, and the New Wave Feminists about the idea that let's co-create a world in which there is support. Uh, You know, one of the things, even in our own country, the government doesn't want to support the, the babies that people have that can't support them themselves, you know. Yeah, well, and I would say that I think that's the most dangerous thing that ever happened was us making the abortion issue a partisan issue, because I can tell you that I've been a part of many groups that stand out on sidewalks, not the crazy people with the bullhorns and the signs at all. I I completely uh, condemn that type of behavior. But people who just stand out on the sidewalks and offer resources to women, because you do see women who are sobbing as they're walking through those doors, and you know that this is not a choice they want to be making. And so we want to make sure that they know if you're going to be kicked out of your house, here's a local maternity home where you can stay if you you know need medical care here's medicaid and and the issue that we see is the people who are pro 
life, you know, um, anti-abortion, I'll call them, are not necessarily pro-lifetime. And that's where yes. I see the disconnect. The yes. same people who want to make abortion illegal are also wanting to cut funding for health care and yes. education. And so how do we how how do we get on the same page when it comes to that? Because I'm very much pro-lifetime. I I think that, you know, supporting a woman um, cannot stop as soon as the child has exited her body. Uh, I think adoption's a wonderful thing if done right. But you know what? I, I think keeping families together is even more powerful. Keeping a mother with her child and making it so that she's able to do that would, of course, be the most optimal um, outcome for these situations. And so I agree. Where Where's the consistency? Because I see... I, I'm an independent. I don't, you know, fit into either political party, but I do see this one side that is very compassionate towards, um, you know, the fetus, but then the other side is more consistent when it comes to being whole life, you know, pro-lifetime. Right. Um, so I'm at the point now where I, I honestly have zero faith in the government. I think that, you know, when <laughs> someone is in is in need, when, you know, my neighbor's having a crisis, when I need to rush my child to the hospital to get stitches because they fell off the playground, whatever it is, I, I call the people close to me. I don't call my senator. And so I do think that the more that we can get back to the villages, to people asking for help, and to being able to have support systems on one-on-one basis versus everything feeling like it needs to be legislated, I think that that's key. Um, to your point about the hard cases, which the hard cases are are very small in the overall percentage of abortion, but I think yes. that you know that's another place where we can certainly talk on this planet because of sexual assault. Um, so it's very hard for me to use their stories to further an argument for abortion. Um, but one thing that I do find to be true is that in those cases, it's almost a given that the woman's going to have an abortion. Um, the people surrounding her, if she has become pregnant from an assault, you know, will tell her things like, that's the rapist, baby. You don't want to see your rapist every time you look at that child. And I find that incredibly um, condescending and disempowering to women because it's also her child. And so when we say that basically this human being deserves to die because of the sins of the father... To me, again, as a feminist, that's a very patriarchal uh, line of thought. And I think that when we can support a woman, for a lot of women, when you listen to their stories, they will talk about how, you know, continuing those pregnancies actually brought healing to them. Um, Because if you... If we understand that sexual assault is, of course, a violent act against a woman, a lot of women will also think that abortion is the same way. And so for us to just assume that she needs abortion, um, I think, is incredibly demeaning to the women who actually have been in those situations. And they hear us using the most horrific event that ever happened to them as a talking point, you know, to bolster public policy um, that they probably, you know, many of them don't even agree with. I, I I agree with you about that, too. Uh, my point really is, what do we do in the meantime until we create a society that is the way it ought to be, according to all of us here on this show? You know, what do we do in the meantime to prevent young girls like myself from killing themselves with right. Ill, with illegal abortions or the lack of access to it. In the meantime, I, I am absolutely not proposing that we continue to fight for abortion forever and ever. I think we need to create a society, just like you were saying, we need to address all the underlying issues 
that result in unwanted pregnancies that result in unwanted abortions. But until that happens... What do we do? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I How agree. do we I protect women's health? Yeah. Abortion is clearly a symptom of a broken society. And so I think we have to, you know, rather than the macro, look at the micro. And, and that is something where public policy is good when it supports and encourages, when it starts banning and restricting, a lot of times you get into this minutia where it can't address every single case and people do end up falling through the cracks. And so again, for for me, I think that's where it's it's good to have kind of a consistent life ethic, in my opinion, and believe that all lives are valuable and we want to protect them all. We want to support people. We want to love people. What does that actually look like? Well, I can't do that for the whole nation. You know, none of us can. But what we can do is we can support the people in our communities. We can give back. You know, I think a lot of times we spend time... I always joke about this because we spend how, how much time did we spend talking about the last election and all of the people who were running and everything like that. But when it comes to our local city council, who can name all of the people on their local city council? This is a place where we actually can have some impact is in our own communities. But we care so much about, you know, these big federal um, elections and policies and things like that that probably aren't going to affect us very much. And so I think people getting back to communities and, you know, if I can go serve at a maternity home or a women's center or I can build ramps to people's houses or, you know, whatever the thing is in my community where I can actually give back, I have truly helped someone much more in that capacity than who I cast a vote for every four years or, you know, what I ramble off out of my head about some public policy. Well, I, you know, again, I I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I do think it's important to vote, but even, yeah, but I also agree with the only antidote to feeling helpless and hopeless is taking action. And, you know, whatever action you can take, even if you can't volunteer at a maternity home, if you treat your children more kindly or your husband more kindly, you know, you are having an impact on that collective Absolutely. energy that, that can change our world. Um, I had so, something, uh, Helen, if, if go there's ahead, time. Sure. This popped in my head a while ago. And, you know, I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old boy. So, um, Destiny, just so you know. So I'm kind of like looking from a parent's perspective. And, you know, we're trying to raise our kids to be um, – you know, thoughtful, caring, and really, you know, aware of what they're getting into when they start having sexual activity. I mean, I started later than a lot of my friends did, I know. Um, And, you know, it's such a paradox because there's this capability that you have to procreate at a time when your brain is not even fully developed yet. (laughs) You know, you don't have that kind of truistic part of your brain, I think, comes online around 21, something like that. So it's a real, it's, it's challenging. Yeah, well, and, and, I, and my son is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry say that my, again. There's, there's a bit of delay. My son is 16 now and uh-huh. he just got his first girlfriend. And of course, this is the age that I became pregnant with him. So you yes. are preaching to the choir when it comes to, you know, I want my children to be sex positive. I want them, um, you know, obviously to have a respect for the fact that this is a procreative act. But at the same time, you know, unfortunately, we live in a society right now inundated by pornography and exploitation and instant gratification. And so how do you balance that as a parent and say, I want you to be intentional with the people that, you know, this is a beautiful act. It's one of the greatest things I think human beings can do. But we live in a very instant gratification society and, and, you know, the hookup culture. And I think we're kind of we are seeing the negative of um of just flaunting this ability just because we can, there, there are going to be natural consequences for it. Yeah. Yep. 
And it's a tough one. It's not easy to, uh, you know, you can't legislate. It really comes from relationships and having that depth of relationship that I didn't have with my parents. So that's, I would attribute a lot of that to that. It was like, they weren't teaching me how to connect. So I'm curious what kinds of things you do in schools. Do you, do you go into high schools? Do they let you talk about these kinds of things? So, yeah, I mostly speak at colleges. Um, Okay. And yeah. it is something, you know, like I talk about the patriarchy, the patriarchy that I would say third wave radical feminism is fighting against is a lot like the one Helen's talking about, the guy who wants to, you know, keep you pregnant and pumping out babies to plow his fields and stuff and how mm-hmm. that is kind of disappearing. You know, outside of Utah, we don't really see that a whole lot. What yeah. we <laughs> see now is the guys who do just want to use women. And I was I was a product of that um, kind of from the flip side. I was the aggressor because I was a strong woman and, you know, from like 11 years old, I started sneaking Cosmo magazines and feeling like this is my power is my sexuality. This is how I'm going to rule the world. And unfortunately, we give this message to young women um, at such a young age, just through marketing and advertising and billboards when you're going down the street that your greatest power is your sexuality. And I think that is what is so hard and and so difficult about growing up a girl in this day and age but you know my husband would counter that by saying he he's always been on the flip side of that where it's the aggressive women it's not the aggressive men anymore and it is because we're just constantly being fed these messages and then you know it creates the perfect storm when we live in a culture that everybody has a phone from you know the time they're 12 years old where they can access everything good in the world but also everything bad in the world and you know I was I was talking to my husband about this. I'm sure he'll love uh, me sharing this. But, you know, I remember back in my day, us trying to watch, like, scrambled HBO through, like, the, you know, like, you're trying to to see what you can. And he had a friend who had some dirty magazines. And, and that was what it used to be. We're in a completely different world now where children have access to hardcore pornography. And, you yeah. know, like the saying goes, it's not that this stuff shows too much. It's that it shows too little. It shows too little of the human connection and what relationships are actually about and should be built on. And so, you know, the state of human sexuality in America right now is people are having a lot of sex, but they're having really low quality sex because it's not actually the the level of intimacy that any of us probably desire and are so hungry for. It's, it's friction, you know, unfortunately. And so that's what I try to explain to this next generation of kids is you have access to everything in the world. This is what's being modeled for you. This is what you think is normal. Um, my son was 11 years old when his cousin showed him a hardcore pornographic site. And the fact that that is what he thinks human sexuality is absolutely destroyed me, destroyed me. But it's, damn near impossible to keep your kids away from that stuff right now. So all we can do is use them as, you know, teachable moments and try to counter that with the good of this is what you need to be looking for in a relationship with another person. And then if you do have an unintended pregnancy, hopefully there will be that mutual respect of coming to the decision of what you're going to do together Um, Like I said, versus this kind of lopsided thing where the woman has uh, all the power or the man has all the power to make the calls. I, I, I want to throw in something here about our group, our community, which is called the innerrevolution.org. And I want to just say that the reason that we resonate with so much of what you're saying is that we are pushing ourselves to become more, quote unquote, independent on every topic. And, you know, abortion is one of them. Politics is another one of them. Um, but on every topic that we need to stop taking sides 
and come to a place in the middle where we can be more neutral and have compassion and really listen to one another and find our commonality so that we can move forward. We have a group called Interrevolutionary Couples, and you don't have to be a couple to be in the group, but it's about human sexuality and how we can make our sexuality sacred, and it's not sacred in a religious way. It's sacred right. in in that it's a you know it's it's a it's a sacred connection between the oneness and each other, and that it's not about gratification on that genital level. You know, it's about a whole connection, body, mind, and spirit. And the three principles that we believe in and try to live by, not perfectly by any means, but our oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I, I know that you can instantly instantly start, uh, your mind is going to be clicking, Destiny, with how in alignment we are, because those those three principles is what you've been talking about all day with us, is that, you know, we are one. We are all human beings, whether we're a, a conglomeration of tiny cells, or we are prisoners, or whatever, you know, we're all one. Absolutely. We are accountable. We are accountable for our actions and our impact, and we desperately need to, to act from a place of mutual support. And when we talk about mutual support, we talk about doing what is for the highest good of all, mm-hmm. inclu- including every individual. It has to include everyone, or it's not for the highest good of all. You know, you can't do for the, you know, what's for the highest good of all, for instance, uh, by having a baby that isn't wanted in a world where you can't possibly support that child, the child's going to die or whatever it is, you know, and, and neither can you have an abortion and think that that's for the highest good. You know, we have to find ways, creative ways that our actions are really for the highest good of all, including everyone. And we're, we're fighting for that, but it's part of human evolution and we're, we're just in the process and it's yeah. Yeah. it's painful, I it. and I want to I want to say you know that Destiny has agreed to uh, join us on Saturday, um, April eighth, for a much more in depth uh, conversation with m- more people uh, about this same topic called revolutionizing the abortion conversation, and I'm so excited. And I you know we've we've found in our research that there are quite a few other groups and I know that you've mentioned some destiny that are coming together with this same idea that we've got to revolutionize the abortion conversation we've got to come together and find our common ground and stop this ridiculous polarization that leads to further death and destruction and violence Um, and I'd like you to talk about that if you would destiny about the hopefulness that you've seen in this uh, process yeah, absolutely. I'll kind of end on that. I mean, we are we are trying to change the stereotype because it, it it's different than what everyone thinks. You know, when it comes to the pro life movement, I think a lot of people, uh, the second you say that word, they think of the person with the bullhorns and the signs, and that is a very small fringe percentage of the people out there. But they're the ones who are you know 
going to be the cover of the New York Times all the time because they're the ones who have the time to go out and protest these clinics and whatnot. The real pro-life movement are the people who are working to, working closely to to serve women. And, you know, talk about common ground. That is common ground right there. Um, I went to the Women's March for Washington in January with some of these other pro-life groups, and it was such a phenomenal experience. And it was just, you know, this electrifying crowd and so, I mean, talk about common ground. There are so many women out there who just want to serve others and help others. And we are right there with them. And uh, it gives me so much hope for the future of this nation that we are becoming more compassionate and empathizing with one another and supporting one another. Well, Destiny, I, I cannot thank you enough for being here with us and bringing your hopeful, optimistic, compassionate and courageous viewpoints to us and We've got so much common ground on all sides, and let's fight for that going forward. And I can't wait to get to know you more on April 8th, and I hope our audience will join us. And I want to hear about next week's show. (laughs) Todd? Yes. So what if – yes, next week we're going to be talking about what if Buddhist economics ruled our world? A conversation between me, Todd Benton, and Claire Brown, UC Berkeley economics professor and author of Buddhist Economics. The economic and political system that reigns supreme does not care about the health or welfare of anyone. It's a machine that chews up executives, secretaries, and fast food workers alike. It's a machine that's chewing up the earth itself. But what if this wasn't the case? What if our economic system was based on a wholly different model? A model based on the notion that quality of life should be measured by more than national income. UC Berkeley economics professor Claire Brown will join us to answer... These questions and more. She'll share her approach to organizing the economy that embraces rather than squirts, skirts questions of values, sustainability, and equity. In her new book, Buddhist Economics, Brown incorporates the Buddhist emphasis on interdependence, shared prosperity, and happiness into her vision for a sustainable and compassionate world. We cannot thrive in a world where we sacrifice ourselves and others to an economy and societal norms which are ruthless and which put short-term self-interest before our health and the health of the earth itself. Join us for this important conversation. Thank you, Todd. Bless us all. Thank you again, Destiny. We love you, and we hope to see all of you soon. Thank you so much, and goodbye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.